I am uh, going to give you a testimonial myself about Sabbath. Yesterday was my Sabbath, and it was a wonderful gift. I watched some football, and I took a nap. What? Yes, that's how good Sabbath can be. You can take a nap as an adult, and it is blessed blessed by God, so that is wonderful. Hey, if I don't know you already, I'm Rick. I'm so excited that you're here. Yes. And I would like for you to participate in one of my favorite things in the world with me, and that's the reading of God's Word. So I'm going to ask you to stand up, and we're going to read this together. I'm going to read it. You can follow along in your Bible. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And here's the thing. This is new for some of us. Uh, actually, it's new really to us all. For some of us, we're familiar with this practice. Um, but I'm going to read the passage that we're going to talk about today. And then at the end of it, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And then you are going to respond. This is called a call and response. Thanks be to God. Yes, yeah, see? And so we're getting it. We're getting used to this. So I'm going to finish the passage. I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to say, okay, we're ready. We're ready. So Matthew chapter 5, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start in verse 13. It's the section titled Salt and Light. It says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Nailed it. Thank you. Have a seat. <laughs> Such an honor to read the word of God together and for you all to participate in that. There's power in that. I'm sure you feel it. I know I do. So again, yes, we're talking about salt and light. We're in this series um, talking about practicing the way of Jesus, going through the Gospel of Matthew, and learning how Jesus taught us to live, mimicking his patterns, doing the things that Jesus did so that we can be more like Jesus. And so today I want to just say, I feel like there are two types of people in this world. Don't you love that introduction? <laughs> that is a hook. They're like, okay, what's Pastor Rick about to say? There are two types of people. There are ones who can watch a late night movie and instantly fall asleep. Right? Those people who just, you turn the movie on and they are snoozing. And then there's ones who watch a late night movie and they cannot fall asleep no matter what until it's done. Right? You can relate to one of those two, I'm sure. Now, I'm usually, and my wife can attest to this, I'm usually the one who cannot stay awake regardless of how compelling the movie is. But earlier this week, I had a different experience. I got sucked into a movie that I could just not stop watching. And this movie is called The Big Short. Are you familiar with The Big Short? It's leaving Netflix at the end of the month, that's why I decided to watch it. And this movie is a dramatization, it's a dramatized version of the 2008 financial crash. And it's based on real events. Now, I'm not a market analysis. We have some of those people here. Nor do I work in the mortgage world, and we have some of those people here. So I'm actually not quite sure how accurate the movie is to real life. But it seemed like a solid 
portrayal of what was happening. And so I want to just give you a quick synopsis and tell you why I even bring this up. You don't need to know my sleep patterns. That's not the point. <laughs> so here's the plot of the movie. Essentially, the banking industry had been using and has been using the housing market to profit from debt, and in this case, mortgage loans, for decades, right? This was normal practice. Now, this type of debt was typically a safe bet for banks, but in this instance, there was a problem. Over time, the quality of the debt was degrading for various reasons, and it was becoming more risky. But the banks were not adjusting their risk and their risk assessment. Part of the problem was that they had these massive amounts of loans bundled together, and so they weren't taking the time to properly evaluate the quality of these loans. And then the other part of the problem was that they just weren't paying attention to the quality itself. So they weren't looking at the loans and they weren't assessing them properly. But there were some smart people who were paying attention, and this is what the movie is all about. They decided, hey, we see this trend and we're actually gonna bet against the housing market. Come on, people. And they bet against the banks. And so there's these factors, there's all of these factors, and there's many other complex ones that I'm sure Patrick can help you understand, or Randy can help you understand. They work in those industries, just in case you were wondering. And they came together to create what the, what the experts called a housing bubble. You heard that term, right? A housing bubble. There was a hollow, inflated bubble that looked good on the surface, but inside it was actually falling apart quickly. It was not supported by anything. And eventually that bubble popped, right? It popped. Now, if you want to know more about what happened in the movie, I would suggest, it's pretty interesting, you can take a look at it, but it was not actually the movie itself that kept me awake. It wasn't that. What caused me to lose sleep was the all-too-apparent parallel to what I and many others believe has become a discipleship bubble. A thin, hollow veneer, if you will, that lacks substance and leaves Christians vulnerable to as what Ephesians 4 says, being spiritual infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Now I could give you a laundry list of concerns that I have about practices of discipleship that I think have led to this bubble in the Western Evangelical Church. And some of those things I am guilty of myself. Some of those things our church is guilty of. So this is not a moment of condemnation more. This is a moment and an opportunity for a course correction. Some of these practices have run their course, they've been useful in the past, and they're just simply not useful anymore, and some of them have just been bad from the beginning, but whatever the case may be, I want you to know that our team is part of a group of people all over the Western world that God has been prompting prayerfully through deep dialogue, through deep prayer, to reevaluate our practices of discipleship to Jesus. Now, I want to be very clear about this. We are not rethinking our alignment to Jesus. 
Do not hear that. I want to make sure that is very clear. We are all in on Jesus, but we have been thinking about how to best lead people to know and to follow and to be like Jesus mm -hmm. as he's commanded us to. Foundationally, the goal of every Christian is to be more like Jesus. And in order to be like Jesus, we need to know what he's commanded us to do. And we must put that into practice in our own lives. The way that I've been saying it in recent weeks is that the only pathway to true human flourishing is to know and obey the commands of Jesus. The only pathway to true human flourishing is to know and obey the commands of Jesus. Now, we are not the first people in history to experience a discipleship bubble. Two weeks ago, if you were here, we talked about Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath. This is the topic that Jessica just talked about. It's a thing that we're practicing as a church. And the Pharisees, in this teaching, the religious leaders of the day, they were condemning Jesus' disciples for working on the Sabbath. They were eating food for themselves because they were hungry. And Jesus responded. He said, the Sabbath is made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. That's my own language. But that's essentially what he said. Meaning that the point of the Sabbath was to make people more whole. Not less whole. Not to demand their hunger. But to help them be more whole. But the thing that happened was is their Sabbath theology and their discipleship of others into the Sabbath became backwards. The Pharisees had gotten so jumbled up that they were living a version of discipleship, a discipleship bubble, if you will, that on the outside looked so good. They knew how to say the things to say, to talk the talk, to walk the walk, to wear the right clothes to church and say the right things to the people in the hallway, right? They knew how to do that. But on the inside, it was hollow. They were hollow of right thinking and of right practice. Discipleship bubbles, as I am calling them, happen when people forget to make the main thing the main thing. Right. And the main thing for us as Christians is to be more like Jesus. And so that's what we're doing. That brings us to our section for today. This section that we just read famously called Salt and Light. This section is a powerful declaration by Jesus regarding the relationship his disciples do and will play throughout the rest of time, meaning we're included in this group to the world around us. And so I wanna revisit just verse 13 as we talk about it. It says, you are the salt of the earth. It's talking about you, Christ's follower. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled Underfoot. Now, Jesus is using this analogy of salt, about people being the salt of the earth, about Christians being the salt of the earth, and the usefulness of salt, and the usefulness of salty salt versus unsalty salt. That was a lot of salt. <laughs> now, there certainly are a number of metaphors with salt that can be applied here. We talk about taste, right? Salt adds taste. It's a preservation mechanism, it's a cleansing mechanism, and all of these roles of salt are related to Jesus and the Jesus follower, the disciple. 
And the layers in this teaching really display the genius of Jesus, this rich depth, like an unending well. You can return to that passage over and over and over like I did again this week in my preparation to find it a new spring, a well of new goodness in my soul. But underneath all of the analogies, there is this connection that Jesus is establishing, this connection of this new covenant that Jesus is bringing, that he's establishing in the world, in the kingdom of God. That was Jesus's role, coming, reigniting the kingdom of God it was as it was meant to be and establishing his words, a new covenant. Now, covenant is not a word that we hear very often. It's probably not a word you would use at all outside of scripture, at church, or in teachings. And so I wanna just give you a basic explanation. This is very basic, there's a lot to do with covenant that you can learn. But essentially it is a, an agreement. It's between two parties and it remains intact regardless of a change in conditions for either party. So here's an example of what it looks like. In traditional wedding vows, which we know to be a covenant, you hear the words, through sickness and health, till death do us part. That is the essence of covenant. The phrase, unity in marriage, despite the condition of that person or how they change, until death. That's the essence of covenant. Now this idea is built upon God's covenantal relationship with Israel. God made a covenant with Israel. He made a few of them. And one of them is captured in Genesis 9. And I want to read it to you, just um, what God had to say. Genesis 9, verses 12 and 13 says this. It'll be on the screen. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign, the covenant between me and the earth. What God is doing, he's making a pronouncement to Noah and his family that he will never again flood the earth as it happened in the days of Noah's ark. And the rainbow was that symbol. So a covenant is essentially God calling his people into an agreement and that agreement is for the benefit of his people and for his glory. That's the language we've talked about a lot. God is all about his own glory. And most of the time, the way he accomplishes that is through his people and their worship. Now, I can say much more on covenant, but we have what we need to understand what is happening in the salt, in earth, salt of the earth analogy. So let's talk about what this means. Let's talk about what Jesus is getting at. When Jesus talks about salt, he's referring to a symbol that was representative of a covenant that God used in multiple Old Testament examples. I'm going to give you four. I'm going to start with three, and then we'll read a final one. Leviticus 2.13 says this, Season all of your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. So there's again, the salt of the covenant of the Lord your God, of the grain offerings. Numbers 18, verse 19 says, Whatever is set aside for the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and daughters as, the perpetual, as your perpetual share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord 
for both you and your offspring. Again, the salt is the symbol of the covenant God's making in that moment. Highly encourage you to go back and read these passages. We didn't have enough time to go into more depth. Second Chronicles 13.5 says, Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the, king, the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt. So here we have these three moments in the Old Testament where God reminds the Israelites, his people, his chosen people, of a covenant he made, and he does it with salt. Okay? But here's one more example in the Old Testament. I find this one very compelling, where God used salt as a symbol, and it symbolized the future promise of Jesus' purifying work. So in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, this is what it says. The people of the city said to Elisha, look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Time out. In that world, that means it's completely useless. In an agrarian society, if the water is no good, it is no good at all. So Elijah says, bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. So salt, which is a signal for covenant, is used to purify that bad water with the promise from God, I have healed this water and never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. So this time, the salt is a signal of the everlasting purifying work for that source of water. So what is Jesus alluding to then? Jesus, through his death and resurrection, established an everlasting purifying work for his disciples. Amen. So you fast forward to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, being this incredible teacher, is revealing something very important, and I want us to notice it. The salt of the earth reference that Jesus is signaling to his audience is one of a new covenant, a covenant where Jesus himself is the promise of this covenant, and his followers are to be the tangible example of, like salt to the rest of the world of this new covenant. Now, we'll get back to that in just a moment. He moves on to the light of the world. After Jesus calls his disciples the salt of the earth, he gives them another important analogy. Verse 14 says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus calls us, myself, you, the light of the world. And this is another statement that has a rich history, that has a lot of subtext, a lot of underlying meaning, a lot of layers and practical applications. And we find one of those references, those applications, those connections in the Old Testament in a very familiar and important verse in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 7 says this, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, I will take hold of your hand, I will keep you, and will make you to be a covenant 
for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Now, that's a powerful verse. And it's foreshadowing, of course, it's in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, foreshadowing to the work of Jesus. Not only do we see this covenantal language again, but we see this prophetic message in Isaiah that whoever calls on the Lord is going to be a light to the Gentiles, starting with Jesus. And they will accomplish some pretty incredible things. It mentions right there. To open the eyes of the blind. I want you to think about in that moment, foreshadowing to Paul and his Damascus Road experience, literally blind in the work of the Lord, opening his eyes. To set the captives free, it says. Think of those who are under the law of sin and death, now free to live under the law of Christ. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness, those who are to be free from the lies and the bondage of the enemy. And the shame that comes from that and the guilt that comes from that. In Jesus, they are free. So the salt and light teaching is not just a great analogy. It's actually a declaration of our identity in Jesus. It's a declaration of who we are. That's such good news. The example of Jesus, his way of living, and the commands of his teaching are meant to be treated with an even greater commitment than the Israelites treated the law of Moses. If you were here last week, I talked about how much the law of Moses meant to the Israelites. I mean, he was there. Um, I don't even want to make a basketball analogy because I feel like it's always controversial. Right? <laughs> he was their LeBron James. He was their Lebron. Okay, yeah. See? Devontae, you're the final say. Who's the greatest? LeBron. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Devontae. Hopefully, hopefully LeBron will listen to this sermon. <laughs> the Israelites treated the law that Moses gave them through God with such reverence and what we're seeing here is that this new command that Jesus is giving, this new identity is to be treated with even more reverence. Because disciples, being a disciple of Jesus, is indeed your primary identity. It's your primary identity. It's above all other identifying markers. Male, female, student, uh, basketball player, parent, like whatever you think you are, above all of that, is a follower of Jesus. Or not, if you're not, but I would hope that you are. That's your primary identifying marker. And when we enter into that identity, we become, as Jesus says, like salt and like light. Salt of the earth, light of the world. We bring flavor to this world. We preserve the good in this world. We cleanse the bad through the power of the Holy Spirit. We drive out the darkness that consumes so many people. We reveal the good news of the gospel to those who have lost hope. And thankfully, we are not left to figure this salt and light work out on our own. And we know that because Jesus ends this passage with a call to action. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a big call to action. I'm a doer. And so I like to get things done. So sometimes I read scripture and I'm like... 
that was really nice, and I hope that God reveals something in it to me. I trust that he will. But every once in a while, you get these nuggets where there's actually a call to action, and you're like, if you're me, you're just like, yes, like, I'm going to do this. But here's the thing. In just a moment, you're going to see it's less about doing and more about being. But verses 15 and 16 says this, Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds. Now, this is as straightforward of a call to action as anyone could possibly give, right? Let your light shine, that they may see your good deeds. And Jesus gives us the picture or the illustration of his intended result. When your light shines on others, they will see your good deeds and our Father in heaven will be glorified. Again, the purpose of all of it, that God may be glorified. Now, everything that goes well in your life is an opportunity for God to be glorified. Is it not? Right? You earn a big promotion at work. All glory to God. You fall in love with the person of your dreams. All glory to God. You buy a beautiful home. You score a winning touchdown. You land a big payday. All of these moments feel so good. We love them. And they're opportunities to glorify God. But... What about the bad moments? What about the moments of weakness? What about the moments of failure? Are these not also opportunities for God to be glorified? Yes, yes they are. And they might even be more so because we don't get the credit. You see, when you are successful at what you intend to do, you get some credit, but man, when you get it wrong, and God lifts you out of that, how good is that? It's terrible for us, but God gets the glory. I don't want, I don't want to be wrong. I don't ever want to be wrong. My wife can definitely attest to that. <laughs> Try being her for a day. You will love her more. <laughs> we don't want to be wrong, but when we are, we get it wrong, and God lifts us out of that anyway, what an opportunity for him to be glorified, for a relationship to be restored, for a body to be healed, for unmerited favor to be received. These are moments that only God can receive the credit for. And it's in these moments that our salt is the most salty, that our light shines the brightest, that the glory of God is on display in its fullest. And so I think someone needs to be encouraged today. When you are weak, God is strong. Amen. That's right. When you have messed it all up, God is the great restorer. Amen. When you cannot forgive yourself, God wants you to know that Jesus has already given you forgiveness. Uh and when these incredible gifts of restoration and strength and forgiveness are on display, they are to the glory of God. Yeah. And so it's actually for this very reason, as we kind of wind down this salt and light section, it's for this very reason that scholars believe that the salt and light teaching is a continuation 
a continuing thought of the Beatitudes, which we covered last week. Last week, we looked at all nine of the Beatitudes. I'm going to read them just briefly and quickly for your memory. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungry for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking, persecuted. Now, popular culture would not say that these are the traits that typically represent a flourishing life, right? But Jesus does. Jesus is saying, when you are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven will be yours. And you will be like salt to the earth and light in the darkness. And I'm going to put on display for all to see your restoration for God's glory. When you are in pain, when you are mourning a loss, you will be comforted. And as you are comforted, you will be like a light to everyone else who is mourning. And God will be glorified. Our moments of pain and failure are actually great opportunities for the mercy and grace of Jesus to be on display and for God to be glorified. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. So here's my closing. In just a moment, we're going to take communion, another opportunity to glorify God, which is going to be wonderful. But I want to close with this. Jesus is encouraging us with this very important reality. This new covenant idea. It's this agreement that's signaled by salt and light. And it's built upon the saving work of Jesus. And it says that even though your good works will be on display, all of this is less about what you do and far more, far more about who you are in Jesus. Your good deeds will be on display, but the more powerful testimony is the work that only God can get credit for. In your life, as you become the version of yourself that is only possible when you follow Jesus. That is why we want to practice the way of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 7, those who hear these words of mine and put them into practice are like a wise man who's built his house on the rock, and when the storms of life rip through, that house will be standing. That's what we want for everyone. That's what we want for everyone in this space. That's what we want for everyone in this community, in this city. Yeah. And so I want to read us a chapter from Hebrews that talks about the covenant, the nature of Jesus to us in this covenant, the context of the letter to the Hebrews is there is a group of Jewish converts, okay? So they're highly religious people, but now they're following what they call the way 
we know now as Christianity. But they would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. They would have been very familiar with the law of Moses. They would have been very familiar with the teachings around covenants. And at times, sometimes when things get a little sideways in their life, their tendency would be to go back to their old ways. Okay? Their tendency would be to go back to behaviors that were law-driven, that were of the old covenant. But this author reminds them of the promise that they have because of Jesus. And so I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. It's going to be on the screen. If you want to just listen, you're welcome to just listen. You can even close your eyes if you'd like. But listen to the words of Hebrews. It says, now the main point of what we are saying is this. Okay, so this is the main point. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were here on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is a superior, is as superior to theirs as the covenant in which he is a mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. <clears throat> And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Now the beauty of that passage, it is rich with meaning and purpose. It deserves its own sermon for sure, but I wanted to share with you that. Because at the very end, Jesus announces his intentions, or the author announces Jesus' intentions rather. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And that is directly related to the identity statement that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, that you will be the salt of the earth and a light to the world. So practicing the way of Jesus, as I've said time and time again, is not about salvation. That is for Jesus' work. 
to do and has already done for those who have called him Lord. Rather, these practices and studying the way of Jesus is so that we might be that salt, that we might be that light. And only God can determine what that looks like in your life. But know this, he has called you to that. He has made a new covenant with you. He has given you everything you need to do, everything he set you out to do. That's really good news. And your good deeds will be on display, but it will be for his glory. It will be for his glory, and you will bask in that goodness with Jesus. So I want to finish our time together by taking communion, and then we're going to sing a couple songs. On your chair, you should have a little cup of juice and a wafer on the top if you want to start opening that. The gift of communion is a remembrance, right? It's a pattern or a practice where we recall the saving work of Jesus. Talks about in the in the final, the last supper, the final moments of Jesus' life. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And the purpose of that was that they would have a tangible way to remember that. It's no longer just a thought in your mind, but it's something much like salt, mind you, that you can taste and see and touch and feel. And that is the gift of communion. So for the believer, this is significant because what we do is we take this and we remember the, the work of Jesus and we let it encourage us and spur us on into the good deeds that he has called us to. And we do so by breaking the bread and tasting it, drinking the cup and tasting it. And it's truly a great reminder. So I'm gonna pray over these elements and then you can receive them. And then you can stand and sing with me. Now I wanna just invite anybody in here who would like some prayer. Um, both Mike and Paige are gonna be over right underneath that storm sign, just right over against that wall. They're going to be over there to pray with anybody who wants prayer during this time of singing and receiving communion. And I would encourage you, go be prayed for. Go be prayed for. There's no shame in that. We all have stuff. So after this prayer, receive the elements, stand with us and sing, receive prayer if you would like. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather and to read your word and receive your goodness. God, we all have moments where we don't feel as salty as we should or as bright as you have called us to be. God, may we see that as an opportunity to bring you even more glory that we share our testimony of your goodness in our life. Starting with the saving work of Jesus, the reason we remember through this act, active celebration of God's saving work in communion. Speak to our hearts. Bless these elements. May they enrich our soul today. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and receive the elements and then join us.